All right, welcome everybody to today's event. I'm Kurt Couchman. I'm a manager of government affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, as most of you probably know, the Cato Institute is a nonpartisan public policy research institute that's dedicated to increasing the understanding of public policy based on limited government, free markets, individual liberty, and peace. Um, today's event is about the dangers of U.S. military dominance. And uh, the defense of our country is obviously one of the founding reasons for the colonists coming together in the first place and creating this country and creating the Constitution. In fact, I brought my little copy of the Cato-issued Declaration of Independence and uh, Constitution. I went through the powers that the Constitution grants to Congress, and fully half, nine of the 18 clauses in there, relate to some aspect of homeland security and defense. So obviously they saw that at the time as being the preeminent um, duty of the federal government. Now, within that, um, there's another clause that appears right at the end of Article uh, one section eight, and that talks about the necessary and proper laws for implementing the other powers in the Constitution. So the question that brings us here today, essentially, is what is necessary and proper to ensure the defense of the United States? Uh, what, what's the purpose of the military, fundamentally? Um, are we spending the right amount, too much, too little? And uh, how do we know what that is? Is the national interest even well-defined um, or at least do policymakers have a clear idea of what that is? So we have two distinguished scholars uh, on international and uh, foreign affairs with us today, uh, Christopher Preble from the Cato Institute and uh, Paul, San Paul Saunders from the Nixon Center. Um, after they speak, we're going to have a Q&A session, so uh, I hope you will all uh, think of interesting and provocative questions to ask them. Our first speaker today is Christopher Preble. He's Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. His book, The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free, is pretty much the proximate cause for us doing this briefing today. Uh, we do have some copies of this outside. Um, you can see Rachel. She's the, the lady in the black. There, yeah, there she is. Um, and uh, so if you're a congressional staffer, then we have those available. Um, otherwise, we have a, uh, a card that you probably picked up on your way in that has a discount coupon on it, so you can go to our website and pick that up if you like. Um, this book, in a nutshell, uh, looks at the enormous costs of the status quo and uh, proposes a new grand strategy that is less costly and uh, would improve our security. Uh, he's also the author of Exiting Iraq, Why the U.S. Must End the Military Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda, and that came out in June 2004. Uh, he's also the author of three chapters of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers, which is a comprehensive guide to what our scholars think should be done about a variety of public policy issues. And he wrote the Countering Terrorism, Domestic Security, and U.S. Policy in the Middle East chapters. Uh, he's been published all over in magazines and newspapers and so on, and uh, he also appears regularly on television and radio. He has a doctorate in history from Temple University. He has taught at St. Cloud State University and also at Temple, and was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy where he served during the Gulf War on the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. Dr. Preble. <clears throat> 
Thanks, Kurt. Thanks to all of you for coming today. Um, it has, uh, it's become commonplace here in Washington for people to refer to the U.S. military as the constabulary force for the whole planet, the world's policemen. Uh, some so, some uh, go so far as to say that the U.S. government is the government for the whole world. Um, now, of course, the United States lacks any formal authority to do these things. Uh, there's been no global plebiscite. There's been no uh, uh, ball- uh, nation uh, worldwide voting. Uh, nor have Americans been asked if they uh, want to perform this role. In fact, when you take polls on this question, um, a majority of Americans aren't interested in being the world's policemen. And this really shouldn't come as much of a surprise. Um, even the defenders of our current grand strategy admit that it is costly and therefore deeply unpopular. Quote, to make sacrifices largely for the benefit of others counts as charity, explains Michael Mandelbaum, and for Americans, as for other people, charity begins at home, unquote. We should dwell for a minute uh, on the nature and extent of this charity. <clears throat> Some total that U.S. taxpayers spend on national defense, national security, uh, goes well beyond the budget of the Pentagon, of course, the DOD budget passed by Congress FY 2009 totaled $513 billion. This figure, however, misses a number of additional expenditures and budgetary gimmicks. For example, beyond the base budget, we must account for the cost of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, averaging $10 billion each month. Uh, Secretaries Gates and Clinton just yesterday asked the Senate Appropriations Committee to approve another $83.4 billion spending bill for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, my uh, passage by Memorial Day is their hope. That's to fund the balance of FY09 uh, war costs. Uh, in terms of uh, national security spending, we also have to count the $20 billion tucked away in the Department of Energy's budget for the care and maintenance of the nation's nuclear weapons and defense-related expenditures within other government agencies. Uh, national security spending also includes, of course, the Department of Homeland Security, $44 billion, and the nearly $92 billion in the Department of Veterans Affairs. So that comes to roughly $800 billion, $800 billion. Now, some people say that isn't that much, especially when you consider it as a share of our roughly $14 trillion GDP. Uh, but looking at defense spending as a share of total output obscures more than it reveals. Let's consider a more tangible number, one with fewer zeros. We spend approximately $2,600 for every person living in the United States, every man, woman, and child, $2,600. I think per capita national security spending is far more telling than the total amount spent in real terms or as a share of GDP. Uh, According to the latest figures from the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the average British citizen paid just over $1,038 for defense, in 2007, the average Frenchman about $975. Japan spent about $322 per person on defense, and Germany just over $511. We don't yet have comparable figures for 2008, but it's reasonable to assume the gap has actually grown as the costs of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and mounted. And uh, military spending in a lot of other countries has remained stable or, in some cases, actually declined. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Increased defense spending in Russia and China, about which we hear so much, hasn't begun to close the gap in terms of spending on a per capita basis. According to IISS and my own calculations, the average Russian paid as much as $579 
per person, and the average Chinese a mere $92 on national defense. So why do Americans spend so much, both in real terms and relative to what others spend, when one looks objectively at our security needs relative to that of other countries, it is obvious, or at least it should be, that most of what we spend on defense is not focused on our defense or on our national security, but rather the defense of others. Uh, we have chosen, in other words, to spend so much because we fear that other countries might come under threat or that entire regions might collapse into chaos were it not for the U.S. military maintaining a constant presence in distant corners of the world. These are gifts. So say the advocates of our current grand strategy, gifts for which we are not paid by definition and don't expect to be paid. But let me suggest the costs run deeper, much deeper. Our interventions on behalf of others, these gifts, engender resentment and hostility, and in some cases invite harm upon American people, upon the American people. My personal favorite encapsulation of this problem comes from Robert Kagan, who's one of the most articulate and uh, outspoken defenders of the foreign policy status quo. In fact, he had a hand really in crafting it uh, uh, more than a, a decade ago. And this is what he said in 2003. The United States does act as an international sheriff, self-appointed perhaps, but widely welcome nevertheless, trying to enforce some peace and justice in what Americans see as a lawless world where outlaws need to be deterred or destroyed, often through the muzzle of a gun. Europe, by this Wild West analogy, is more like the saloon keeper. Outlaws shoot sheriffs, not saloon keepers. <clears throat> well, this is a deeply flawed analogy. Uh, it's based on this mythical Wild West portrayed in Hollywood movies, the picture of sniveling, cowardly townspeople hiding behind the heroic sheriff, standing alone against the outlaws. We all know the, the you know, Gary Cooper in High Noon is the enduring archetype. Makes for good drama, but is no more grounded in reality than the Wild West portrayed in Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles. The people living in the Western Territory in the late 19th century were independent and autonomous individuals. They were highly capable of defending themselves and inclined to take matters into their own hands when the long arm of the law couldn't quite reach their corner of the world, which was most of the time. The members of the notorious James Younger gang learned this lesson the hard way when they attempted to rob the First National Bank in Northfield, Minnesota in September 1876, and the townspeople cut them to pieces. Kagan's analogy is not merely flawed, it's also curious. Curious because it's intended, or at least it's supposed to be, to increase public support in the United States for our continuing to play the role of embattled sheriff. Americans spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year providing security so that others don't have to. We sometimes take risks, including the chance of being shot by outlaws, but we supposedly expect nothing in return. Indeed, when we, when we do act, we often measure the success or failure of our actions by how well others are doing, not by how well we are doing. The most important part of this story to understand at this point 
is that this is largely by design. This is not by accident. The disparity between what we spend and what others spend is as we wish it to be, or at least as important people wishes, wished it to be many years ago. The basic outlines of our current strategy can be traced to 1992, when aides to then Defense Secretary Richard Cheney sketched out the Pentagon's plans for the post-Cold War era. The primary objective of the uh, Defense Planning Guidance document uh, primary objective of U.S. foreign policy, the defense planning guidance explained, was to prevent the emergence of a new rival capable of challenging U.S. power in any vital area, including Western Europe, Asia, or the territory of the Soviet Union. U.S. power was the key to the functioning of global order. Without it, all would collapse into chaos. Um, now, President Bush's 2002 national security strategy picked up where the 1992 uh, defense planning guidance left off, off, quote, our forces will be strong enough to dissuade potential adversaries from pursuing a military buildup in hopes of surpassing or equaling the United States. Well, what's actually happened? Well, I've already alluded to the disparity in terms of per capita spending, but let's go back even a little bit farther. Following a few years in the post-Cold War period when the U.S. did cut military spending, uh, spending began to rise again in 1998. And over the 10 years from 1998 to 2007, and holding constant for inflation, U.S. military spending increased 66%. During the same period, inflation-adjusted expenditures worldwide grew by 33%, but just two countries drove most of those increases. Anyone care to guess who? Russia and China. I've already alluded to them. Well, what about everybody else? The rest of the world, as noted, especially U.S. allies, have not kept pace. Japanese military expenditures have remained essentially flat over the past 10 years and have actually declined slightly since 2001. Germany's defense spending shrank 8.5% over the same period. France has increased its defense spending only modestly, about 6.4%. Even reliable allies like the United States and Israel have not kept pace with U.S. increases. So, to reiterate, the aim of our policies is to discourage potential adversaries from pursuing a buildup and also to discourage our allies from doing the same. And it hasn't worked out that way, at least not in a way that advances U.S. security. Um, it's clear then, at least clear to me, that this experiment in U.S. foreign policy over the last 10 years has not achieved what it set out to do, and certainly not in a way that advances our security at a reasonable cost. And I make the case in my book for a different grand strategy, which I'll sketch out very briefly below. Our current grand strategy ignores, or worse, undermines and erodes that which makes us strong. We have no hostile neighbors, but we have assumed responsibility for countries that do. Our founders limited our likelihood of being involved in foreign wars by investing the war powers in the Congress, which Kurt alluded to. But our current grand strategy hands these decisions over to the executive branch, or worse, to our allies who might engage in reckless behavior and draw us into wars without the consent of the American people. The advocates of our current strategy contend that the international economic order might come crashing down were it not for the United States military uh, present everywhere in the world threatening random pirates or fraudulent operators. A different grand strategy would build on the more plausible assumption that the international economic order is far too complex and the scale of transactions far too great to be policed by any single power, even one as powerful as the United States. A new grand strategy built on very different assumptions about our interests and the way the world works would require U.S. policymakers to separate and prioritize urgent concerns uh, from less urgent or irrelevant ones and focus on devolving many of our current military obligations to other countries. 
the United States need not engage in risky and often counterproductive missions abroad in order to be secure at home. In short, uh, nor is a single global hegemon necessary to police global trade. Um, at the end of the day, however, this is a choice. We chose this strategy, and we can choose to change it. Uh, others will not force this change upon us. That is, others, other uh, world powers, others around the world, will not force this change upon us. Or if they do, we won't like it very much, the, the, the way that will play out. I'm confident that we can change, but I'm realistic enough to know that it will not be easy. I mean, after all, there will be resistance to the United States adopting a military posture more befitting a country with our geostrategic advantages, resistance from other allies who will be expected to do more, and resistance from within the United States where powerful domestic interests benefit disproportionately from high military spending and the interests of the far greater number of people whose interests are primarily based on security, are not sufficient to override those parochial concerns uh, tied explicitly to military spending. We also need to be clear about the right kind of change, because that Americans want change by itself does not tell us very much about the change that, uh, that will result. And uh, it does raise a serious question, of course, uh, particularly in a democracy, about the sustainability of our current strategy if it consistently polls time and time again that it's inconsistent or at odds with what the people want. On the other hand, you know, a purely populist foreign policy uh, likely to be characterized, for example, by hostility to trade and immigration would not be an improvement. And I want to make that point explicitly. It's therefore incumbent upon me and those of us like me who believe in global engagement to make the positive case for that engagement and to spell out what that engagement entails. We must convince Americans that we can and should be globally engaged, but that such engagement need not take the form of a massive, extraordinarily costly military deployed around the world and prone to become entangled in other people's disputes. Above all, we must remain true to our principles, believing in them enough that we do not presume they must be imposed on others by force. Washington, in his farewell address, and Jefferson, in his first inaugural, both admonished their countrymen to steer clear of the internal affairs of foreign powers, and they were anxious for the United States to avoid unnecessary wars. But that does not mean they didn't care about the plight of others. On the, on the contrary, they cared deeply, and their greatest concern was for maintaining the United States as a shining example, which they hoped would serve as a beacon for the world. Two of the leading advocates of our current grand strategy, William Crystal and Robert Kagan, scorned such a vision as synonymous with, quote, cowardice and defeat. Leading by example is synonymous with cowardice and defeat. At the end of the day, one must ask, I will ask, why we should listen to them, these two men, and their cohort of like-minded imperialists who have set this country on such a ruinous course for the past decade. We can see how their strategy has sapped our strength and undermined our security. And we can see, perhaps more clearly now than at any time since the end of the Cold War, that we would be richer, freer, and safer if we adhered more closely to the wise standard that our founders set for us. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Our second speaker today is Paul Saunders. He is the executive director of the Nixon Center. He's also the associate publisher of its magazine, The National Interest. Uh, the, the Nixon Center um, is founded on the philosophy of the enlightened pursuit of national interest, and its objective is to develop guiding principles for the United States' global engagement 
in a dramatically new international environment, principles that combined hard-headed pragmatism and fundamental American values. Uh, Mr. Saunders's policy expertise uh, is concentrated in U.S.-Russia relations, the foreign policy aspects of energy and climate change, U.S. efforts at democracy promotion, and U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy. Uh, he served in the Bush administration from 2003 to 2005 as senior advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs. Uh, prior to that, he was director of the Nixon Center from 1997 to 2003, and uh, for the three years prior to that, he was the assistant director at the Nixon Center. Uh, in 2000, he was also the senior policy advisor, uh, or a senior policy advisor, for the Speaker's, Advo uh, Speaker's Advisory Group on Russia, which was established by the House of Representatives Republican Policy Committee. Uh, he, too, has been published extensively, appears regularly on television and radio, and uh, is the author of a number of, of uh, foreign policy books. Mr. Saunders. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'll try to be uh, brief and uh, uh, to be a little bit provocative. Maybe I'll emphasize more, Chris, the areas where we differ uh, than uh, uh, where we might see things uh, alike. Uh, Chris focused a great deal on our military spending, the size of our military, uh, our capabilities. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about a, uh, a different issue, which is uh, our intentions. You know, when our military does its you know, threat analysis for other countries around the world, uh, they base it on two things. They base it on capabilities, you know, what do uh, they have, and on intentions. What do we think that they want? And I'd like to talk, uh, at least to start, uh, a little bit uh, about what other people think that we want uh, and how that leads them to, uh, to act. Uh, and I think it's an important distinction to make between capabilities and intentions. And just to give one example from, from Russia, which uh, is an area that I work on uh, a great deal, Russia still has most of the nuclear weapons that the Soviet Union had. You know, so why are we not now today all running around scared that we're going to have a nuclear war with Russia? Uh, not because their capabilities have changed, but because we believe that their intentions have changed, uh, that the current Russian government, despite its uh, various failings, uh, is not really interested in getting into a nuclear war uh, with the United States. Uh, and where do we see the biggest nuclear threat? Uh, we don't see it in the countries that have the greatest capabilities. We see it in the countries that we think are hostile to us, like Iran, uh, North Korea uh, terrorist groups, uh, not countries, obviously, in that case, but, uh, but uh, a, uh, uh, groups of people who don't even have, actually, the capability but, but may want it. So with that in mind, you know, I, I think we need to think uh, long and hard about our foreign policy uh, and about uh, not only our objectives and what we hope to achieve through our foreign policy, but also about the impact that it has uh, on others' thinking, uh, on others' uh, assessments. And without trying to uh, uh, engage in a, a debate about specific military actions that our government has, has taken, 
since the end of the Cold War, and uh, you know, some many of them were uh, justified, some of them less so, many of them were successful, others not. Uh, <clears throat> I think it is fair to say uh, that we have been involved in five pretty substantial uh, military operations since the end of the Cold War. I have in mind the two wars in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, uh, an intervention in uh, Bosnia with NATO, uh, and an air campaign against Serbia also uh, uh, with NATO. So if you're another government in the world, you see a United States that in the course of these last 20 years has on five occasions, and this doesn't count a lot of smaller-scale military operations, but on five occasions has been prepared really to use a pretty significant uh, amount uh, of military force. Uh, and really only in a couple of those cases, the first Gulf War and uh, the current war in Afghanistan, uh, did we start out with pretty broad international support. Uh, there were a couple of other cases, uh, the uh, uh, Bosnia and Serbia cases where we had the support of basically all of our NATO allies, but, but not a lot of others. And then there was one case, the, the current war in Iraq, where we didn't even uh, really have the, the full support of our NATO allies. So, you know, with that in mind, if you're another government, you have to make the assumption that if you have significant differences with the United States uh, in the international arena, there is uh, at least a chance that you could become uh, a target uh, of the United States military, and you have to factor that into your thinking. So how do you respond to that? <clears throat> you, know, you have different options. It depends on what size uh, country you're leading. If you're a country like Russia or like China, uh, which Chris mentioned and singled out, you know, you have the option of really trying to increase your military spending, trying to develop the capabilities of your military. Uh, in the case of China, trying uh, uh, especially to think of uh, uh, asymmetrical uh, ways to, uh, to cope with American superiority. Uh, if you're a smaller country, uh, you can uh, you also have uh, some different options and choices. You know, one option is to try to avoid having differences with the United States, uh, and a lot of people certainly do that. Uh, another option is to get the idea that what you really need is nuclear weapons, because the United States doesn't attack countries that have nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, you, you would certainly see uh, in the case of uh, Iran and North Korea, you know, I, I think that's a pretty big motivation, not the only motivation. I'm sure there are other motivations, uh, and, and I'm sure they see uh, uh, other advantages. Uh, but it's clear that one advantage that they particularly want to have uh, is immunity or per the perception of immunity uh, from an attack uh, by the United States military. So, <clears throat> you know... What I mean to be saying by raising this, you know, is uh, uh, that we need to think not just about what we do and what we hope to achieve by what we do, but we need to think a couple of steps ahead when we're formulating our national security policy. 
what's the other guy going to do after we do what it is that, that we want? Uh, how are we going to react to that? How are they going to react to that? You know, we, we have to get uh, a little bit farther down the road. Uh, and I also uh, uh, would say in that context, you know, it's a little bit disingenuous uh, to spend what we spend on our own military. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that it's a lot. We can debate whether it's enough or too much or, or whatever else. Uh, but it's a little bit disingenuous to make a case that we can spend as much as we spend and then we're surprised that other people, you know, would also want to, to spend money on that uh, or uh, to, uh, to build other kinds of capabilities. We can't really uh, have, it, uh, have it both ways. So, you know, the real question, of course, in the end uh, is what do we do about all of this? You know, we have to balance, on one hand, a desire to spend uh, as little as is uh, necessary, uh, and, you know, not just on our, our, our military, but in other areas of our, uh, our public life. Nobody wants to spend more than we need to spend. Uh, but we also want to be sure that we achieve our objectives. Uh, we, want to be we need to balance, uh, in an international context, uh, our desire to do what we need to do uh, with our desire to, uh, to work well with others who don't always want the same things uh, that we do. So how, do we, uh, how do we try to reconcile all of this? What do we do about our, uh, our, our military and our foreign policy more generally? Uh, I'm not sure that it's probably uh, too realistic to spend an enormous amount of energy trying to change the size of our military while we're in the middle of two wars. Uh, and uh, uh, with that in mind, uh, it's clearly uh, uh, the, the issue of the correct size of our military, the shape of our military, uh, how much we should spend to get that. Uh, that's, uh, that's a little bit of a longer-term issue. Uh, and what we really need to do uh, to make those kinds of decisions, and I, you know, I certainly agree here with Chris, is first of all to decide what it is that we want it to do. Uh, and really to have uh, a serious debate about what it is that we want our military to do, uh, how our military uh, should fit uh, into our, our foreign policy. Uh, Chris uh, makes the point in the book uh, that we spend more than the rest of the world combined or close to the rest, uh, close. Close to the, rest of the world combined. Uh, you know, Maybe that is uh, too much. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that I would definitely want to spend more than any reasonably likely coalition of other countries that could be hostile to us. Uh, that's uh, certainly uh, one uh, baseline. Uh, I certainly think we also want to have a capability to put our military uh, in uh, an effective way into pretty much any part of the world uh, that we want to. Uh, not because I personally see threats everywhere, but because uh, I, I see the future uh, as very unpredictable. Uh, but, you know, I, I would note in the context of all of this, uh, uh, you know, we currently have a Secretary of Defense, uh, Robert Gates, and a uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Michael Mullen, uh, 
uh, who have both said publicly, repeatedly, uh, that they think we should actually spend more on non-military uh, aspects of our foreign policy and that they would actually be willing to give up a part of their budget uh, to do that. Uh, and I think that that is uh, the, the fact that both of them are willing to say that uh, I think is, is something that uh, uh, deserves a little bit of attention. Uh, finally, uh, and uh, this is really uh, my final point, my last point, uh, I think we need definitely to think uh, a lot more about when and how we use force. And uh, I'm certainly not opposed to using force. Uh, I think there are times when it's an appropriate instrument of uh, a foreign policy. Uh, but you know, when we decide to use it, we need to be sure that it's really our only avenue. We need to be sure that it will work. Uh, and we need to be sure that what we uh, expect to derive, the benefits we expect to derive from this decision, uh, will, uh, will justify the costs. And not strictly in financial terms, uh, but in geopolitical terms, and really thinking very broadly again, you know, not just about the immediate consequences of any specific act, uh, but how are others going to react to that, what are potential unintended consequences uh, of, our, uh, of our decisions. Uh, I do think that we should be, used, we should, uh, be prepared to use force uh, on behalf of our allies, uh, uh, which is an area where I, I might uh, disagree a little bit with Chris. I'm not sure we can explore that further. Uh, but, uh, you know, first of all, because that's the reason that you have allies in the first place, and if you want them to do it for you, you know, you, you have to be prepared to do it for them. Uh, but, you know, we also need to be uh, very specific or to make a clear distinction uh, between, uh, uh, on one hand, uh, using our military force to defend our allies when they're attacked, uh, which uh, I think uh, if we're a, an ally of a country is probably a legal obligation and, uh, and, and also probably a moral obligation. Uh, but there's a real difference between that uh, on one hand and on the other hand uh, uh, backing actions by our allies uh, that don't particularly serve our interests uh, but can come at a real cost uh, to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you look uh, for uh, uh, example uh, at, at what happened last fall uh, between Russia and Georgia, uh, I think that that happened in part uh, because the Georgian government believed that they had strong political support from the United States. Uh, and they were, uh, as a result of that, uh, somewhat uh, emboldened. Uh, as it turned out, they didn't have uh, quite uh, uh, as much support as they thought. They didn't have the United States uh, in their back pocket. Uh, and they ended up uh, in a... Uh, uh, 
uh, a very unfortunate military confrontation uh, with Russia, uh, which worked out uh, considerably to their disadvantage. Uh, there are a number of other cases uh, around the world. Uh, Taiwan is a very uh, polarizing one, uh, but one where uh, the United States has had for a long time a very clear policy of, of trying, to, on the one hand, to say that we will defend Taiwan, uh, but on the other hand, to say that we will not support, support provocative action by Taiwan. Uh, and those kinds of, of distinctions, I think, are, uh, are very important. Uh, last of all, you know, we really need to bring our uh, rhetoric somewhat more into line uh, with our, uh, uh, our real intentions. And I think Georgia is another good uh, illustration of that because the way uh, during the previous administration that uh, the president and other senior U.S. officials were talking about the president of Georgia and about the United States' relationship with Georgia uh, could have uh, uh, certainly created among some uh, the impression that we had a very strong and close relationship. Uh, when the chips were down, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it became clear that we didn't really have that kind of a relationship. That was bad for us, uh, for, uh, uh, certainly for the Georgians, first of all. Uh, I think actually also for the Russians, although they may not quite have realized it yet. Uh, but it was also uh, bad for us uh, because we put our credibility on the line. Uh, and it was really fairly severely damaged. Uh, and when you saw uh, a f just a couple of months ago a uh, decision by uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan uh, to ask the United States uh, to leave the, the military base uh, there, uh, there's been a lot of emphasis on, well, the Russians you know, promised them $2 billion and pressured them to throw out uh, the United States. You know, that's all well and good, but if you were the leadership of that country, uh, you have to be thinking not only about what the Russians are offering you, but what you really think you're going to get from the United States. And if, what you, uh, if you come to a conclusion that what you really thought you were going to get from the United States is a lot less than you thought it was six months ago uh, or a year ago, then it has an impact on how you make those decisions. So let me end on that. I'm sorry to have talked for so long, uh, but very happy to, uh, to take questions.